0: We are recording. My name is Kevin Larrabee, and my guest for this episode is someone that you may have heard on another one of the podcasts that I do back in my play. If you've listened to that show at all, you've actually probably heard him a bunch on that show because I love having him on there. And that is Mike Micah. Mike, how
1: you doing? I'm doing great, Kevin. How's everything going? It's it's going it's going great. This is
0: still a time warp where by the time people listen to this, it's four weeks later. And the, the, hopefully the, the network is going really well and they're starting to get, this is the first episode that I'm recording with this new $400 audio setup. So it should sound really good. Oh, hope. that's awesome. I, hope, yeah, I, I got to, I got to nerd out a little bit on the, <laughs> the audio equipment and thinking like $250 for a microphone. That sounds like a lot, right? But then it sounds so good. It is going to sound so good and no one's going to hear the traffic outside my house or anything <laughs> like that. But, I want to give a little bit of an introduction for you because, like I mentioned before, you know, you've been on back of my play a lot because you are not only someone that has been in the industry for, for a long time developing video games, but you're also, uh, really a historian. You have an incredible collection uh, of things and you've also been featured in things like Game Over and now you are doing uh, amazing things at Other Ocean and Digital Eclipse where people may know you from uh the Xbox One game IDARB and most recently uh, the uh Digital Eclipse release Mega Man Legacy Collection which I own too many copies of that game sir, <laughs> Uh because it's 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 come out on multiple platforms on the on, on the Xbox One I have it on the 3DS I have it I have a digital and physical on the 3DS and uh Maybe we'll get into, to talking, uh, about that, but just briefly, it is what, what you guys are doing is, is trying to put together these, these collections to preserve these games and make sure that they're available to play on the latest hardware and that these games aren't forgotten as the hardware that they're originally on dies off and, and fades away or goes into some kind of crazy escalated eBay pricing scheme that makes it impossible for people to play these games without Forking over a ton of cash, so obviously you're working on a lot of stuff, sir. <laughs> um, so wh- I, where I want to start because with with this show, it's all about the the incredible people that are on that I get to talk to, and for for people that may have not listened to back of my play, I want to start really at the beginning. And what what was the genesis of of what got you to doing what you're doing today? Maybe that's the very first computer that you were able to get in the house or the first game console, the first games that you got to play. But was it at an early age that you knew, all right, when I get old enough, when I get skilled enough, I know I want to be making video games?
1: It it was. I I remember, I'm trying to think of what my first video game experience was, and I think it was actually Space Invaders at a drive-in theater. And, um, I remember seeing it and not understanding how it worked. I couldn't believe things could be controlled on a TV. I think people forget today that there's nothing like that before. <laughs> there was no, I can control something on a screen. Uh, and that connection that, that exists now that you take for granted that, that didn't exist back then. So seeing total control over uh, anything on screen was amazing to me. And I had always thought it was kind of like, you know, the, the black arts of some kind. How does it? I don't know, didn't know how it worked or anything. I had no idea technically on how it worked until it was in third grade when our school finally got their first computers. They they purchased two Apple IIe's, E's, I think. Mm. And they had them on these wheel carts because the classes would share them. So our class, just one day we came in and the teacher's like, I want to introduce you guys to this new thing. It's called an Apple II, it's a computer. And she was listening to what you can do with a computer. Like, you can do this, you can do that, you can write on it. And then she said, which I think was amazing for her at the time, she said, also, people who make, because she knew we like video games, like, people who make video games use these to make video games. <laughs> and my mind was blown. I was like, how? How? Like, you, you're holding something right there and you have it in front of the class, and this is the thing that you say can make video games. Mm-hmm. I need to know how to do this. And so my friend and I, this guy, Charles Henrich, and I would stay in on recess and figure out the Apple II. We had some help from our teacher but at some point we surpassed even what the teachers knew. And we were just learning, we are reading magazines, we are getting books and typing in programs. And we started to make these little games over recess. And that, that kind of fed my curiosity about computers and video games and what I could do with it. And until that point, the closest I ever got to Actually, making a video game, I would draw pictures of video games in class all the time, mm-hmm. and I think that's why the teacher knew, like, okay, this is going to get their interest if I say video games or whatever. And I would—it was funny because I look back, I still have some of these old drawings from when I was a kid, and I would draw them in pixels because I just assumed, okay, I knew there's something about that, and they can only look like that because every game looked like that. So I drew everything in pixels, and so it's kind of funny. And instead of like dreaming up some crazy fantasy game with high gra- high resolution graphics or whatever, I'm like, well, it's got to be blocky, and I would draw these really blocky games. And so that was kind of it. Like that really set me down the path. And I think at some point my parents must have talked to my teacher because um, my, my dad, after like taking me up to Kmart many, many times and they had these kiosks set up, I would just sit there on the Commodore 64 while they shop for like two hours and just hack away at it. And then one time when he came to grab me and it was time to go, he saw that I had put together this crude Moon Patrol style game and he asked me how I did it. And I was like, well, I looked at this book, I read this, and I did this. And then a week later, we had a conversation at the house, and that just – that became everything for me.
0: I, I think the Apple the Apple IIe is the same computer that I started out with in school, believe it or not. And it's awesome. And I mean, it's just it, – it, it is like the perfect computer, even it was maybe 1990 – I guess it would have been like 92 is when mm-hmm. the Apple – like this is – a computer that at that point was what like twelve years old? Yeah. That that was the very first computer that I was using in school, but it still had all the the best software for teaching kids stuff. Like they had uh like number munchers and of course Oregon Trail and the these games that were just at that time so cheap. And these computers were built like tanks. Like they lasted forever for Apple. They were constantly a a source of revenue while kind of all the other new stuff they were making was bleeding them dry.
1: Yeah, it's true. We were just talking about this the other day in the office here. Uh, Like Everybody, even some of the younger guys in the office, remember using Apple IIs in elementary school or even later, far past the the kind of like date that they were released. And you you look at it and you're like, wow, these machines did a lot for a lot of people. You could do things with them that you couldn't do with more modern machines. It was easier to connect hardware to this machine cuz you could just directly wire things up to it and, and affect it and you just couldn't do that on on more modern machines even at the time so it was it was really hands-on it was very primal but it was it was very easy to use
0: so when when you were making these these games or i guess like th- there was no no internet so you said you had you had magazines but was this uh, a case of Kind of getting those magazines that that had programs included with them, and you're trying to duplicate those programs and like mess with some of the, the uh, like factors
1: in the in the program to make your your own game out of that. That's that's exactly what it was. There were, there were books that would come with the computer, and they would have sample programs you could type in, and then I would start tweaking the numbers and figuring out what would happen there. Mm-hmm. And there was also this. Uh, I remember in the Scholastic. Thing that you get at school where you order your books, you know, you order your Scooby Doo books or whatever. <laughs> um There was a one Scholastic flyer at, at that same time. It was amazing how much came together at the exact same time. In that flyer, that third grade year was basic programming, this little book. And it, I remember it was, I had the red one. I now have a green one that I found too. But it's like everybody remembers this old basic programming book that could work on any computer that had basic. So they generalized it to the most simplest input output. And they had all these games in there, like a Hunt the Wumpus game, a Lemonade Stand game, and all stuff. And so we would, in recess, we would take these games, type them in, and spend as much time as we could typing it in. And then as soon as we'd play it, we'd make tweaks to it and then save it to disk and keep modifying it over time. And we'd kind of turn it into our own game. Like Hunt the Wumpus became this really elaborate game where you get different kinds of weapons and you could, like power up to get things that you can listen to the, the creature further away and all this stuff. It was fun to try to hack these games. And that really started to become an obsession for me.
0: The scholastic book order was how I got access to great games like SimCity and also not so great games like Mega Man 3 for DOS. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not the best way to play Mega Man 3 because it's really not Mega Man 3. Uh, Oh, it was brutal. (laughs) it, It was, it was brutal. I mean, that was, that was a time where ports were not ports necessarily. Ports were sometimes like you get a game on the on DOS versus getting a game on a home console. A lot of times it was a completely different game. It oh was, yeah. It was just like, we're going to start over from scratch and we're going to give it to like this sometimes Western developer. And they're just going to kind of make a DOS game because they know how to make DOS games.
1: Oh yeah. They were given just a, a, a short schedule, a limited amount of money. And they're like, do the best you can to make it like a Mega Man game on the platform you're making it for.
0: <laughs> oh geez. Uh Well, I mean, have things changed that much today? Because I think like with with video games in two thousand and sixteen, the the market and we're gonna I don't know, we're gonna jump all over the place. Yep. We're definitely gonna go back to the past and, and talk some more about you, but I, I think one of the, the really interesting things for me with video games today is that there is a huge divide in between, you know, independent in, uh independent and like smaller development groups and these large triple A you know, tens of millions of dollars to develop video games, with your your, your Call of Duties, or even your Madden's and things like that. Um, wh- was it kind of similar to to what it was like back then, like these small houses and gigantic powerhouses like Nintendo and Sega, or were there still like you know mid tier developers out
1: there? You mean like today? Are there still mid tier developers, or either or? Yeah, you know, it's still. I think it's come around. It's come full circle huh. because in those early days. Uh, I, I, I remember I, I created this art package that lets you create this like artwork that you can then display on any bulletin board system you would dial into with a modem. Mm-hmm. And it was like a, a way for people to express themselves and their artistic side uh, that hadn't happened before at that time. And there was other things that were similar. And I remember I, I felt like I was such a genius, and I was probably only like 14 or 15. And uh, it wasn't really as good as it was in my head. And I would sell that at the computer store. Mm. And it would be on the shelf with all these other programs that other people like me or, or even older people who were just looking at the computer as a hobby and just excited about the the process of creating things. And there was an avenue for you to go and just sell it at the store locally. And um, over time, that, that started to change because as things got more competitive, teams started to grow. And when you started getting into 3D games, teams got even larger. And now we're talking about like 100-person teams for these really high-end Uh, games and especially for people who want to show off the hardware that they have you got to really spend a lot of money to make it really look good and play good and everything um and so for a while like five years ago and and earlier even 10 years ago whatever it was really hard to find uh any team that was really small and it was was an anomaly Mm -hmm. and now with digital distribution really taking hold i think once packaged goods start to go kind of fade out um you people had the ability to do kind of what we did a long time ago in the late 80s you could put a game up on the store yourself without all the middlemen. You didn't have to manufacture it. You didn't have to you know, put all this marketing together. You didn't have to do anything. You just put it up at the store if you wanted to, or uh, if you want to right now. And so we're seeing this renaissance of small teams come back. And there's a lot of really small, incredible, incredibly good games mm-hmm. that are coming out right now on every platform. And it, it's awesome. Right? you got to give a lot of credit to Apple with the iPhone. I think that was yeah. the opening of the floodgates. For a while, consoles didn't even really like these kind of indie games because they were trying to get – the highest quality experiences ever. Mm-hmm. And the way they kind of measured that was, you know, graphics and sound and production value. And um, with the iPhone, I think the whole world realized, like, games can be anything, as long as people have fun with it, it, it has a market. And uh, I think that left Microsoft, Sony, everybody kind of scrambling to make sure their digital stores were similar.
0: Well, let's, we'll get back to digital games. And I, I think I, I sometimes feel like, I'm going to post this. This is going to be one of the, very first, maybe one of the only episodes that get, gets posted are or, or cross-pollinated in Back in My Play and, and we are recording. <laughs> I think this is an important question for people that may be listening to this uh, and they want to know, why, why are video games important? Why are video games important to you? What, what does that mean when someone, because I get that question too, like, why do you care about video games? Why do you care about old video games? Why do they matter? Why do they
1: matter to you? For me, I, I, it goes back to before I got my home computer and everything. I, I one Christmas, I remember opening up this big box, and I didn't even really realize what it was until I was looking at the pictures on it. It was the Atari 2600, and uh, I recognized Space Invaders on it. And my dad happened to also get Space Invaders with it. And that Christmas, I had this Atari. I sat there and played these games, and all my friends seemingly got an Atari the same year. So I think all the parents were like, "Okay, if you're getting an Atari, I got to get my kid an Atari or whatever." Mm-hmm. And it became this kind of social experience that was insane. I I would go, I remember very vividly meeting and hanging out with people over video games. We'd go to arcades, we'd go to their house, we'd bring games with us and uh, trade and do all this sort of stuff. And it really built up a a pretty substantial community in our neighborhood uh, all around video games. We would get together and help each other beat games. We would uh, go to the arcade and look at the latest games and talk about it. And then we go home and discuss like everything about the strategies to these games. And stuff It was really competitive. It was really cooperative. There's all this stuff going on that really brought us together. Uh, and, and very much the same way, like movies used to bring us together in the eighties as well. Like there were, you would just go out as a gigantic group of like 20 kids to go see a movie. And afterwards you just play, like you're in the role of the characters all night long with each other and all this stuff is just crazy stuff going on. And I think, um, one thing that like games really did for me was introduced me to the the whole. I was kind of introverted, and it it got me kind of talking and meeting people. And uh, when it's when it came time to actually making games, I had to learn how to interact with other people in a way where I, if I needed music or artwork, and um, I need to learn anything. There's other people around that probably had the answers, and I I, I learned how to interact with these people at like user groups and stuff like that, which were really popular back then. There's the Ford Motor Company Commodore user group, and they had an Apple user group, and they had like all this stuff all at Ford Motor Company, and all these companies that uh, my my friend's parents worked at had similar user groups they would have on weekends and every month. And I remember going to these things and I would learn so much. There'd be somebody who was older who figured out some graphic trick or uh, figured out a way to like produce different kinds of sounds. And it was just an amazing process of creation with all these people. Like it seemed like everybody was doing it uh, because it was so new at the time. And when uh, the, the NES came out, that was uh, that was at a point where. I was worried games were gone because we had this big crash in nineteen eighty three the market exploded, and like nobody wanted to carry games anymore and I was actually a little depressed because that was my world for so long and like for kids growing up at that point, that's all they knew were video games and movies, and they were intertwined and when that part went away, it was like, oh, that sucks like that that was a good run or whatever then the n e s hits and it just like blew the lid off, and that even got more crazy and one thing that 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 kind of kind of sticks out in my head where um, the kind of games we would play all the time because they, they were bigger, longer, and higher production. Like Super Mario Brothers? Oh, we hadn't played a game like that before. Mm. And so we would spend nights at each other's homes trying to beat that game. <laughs> and it was just like this awesome like camping, you're, but it was all centered around these games. And so when I think about my, my childhood, it wasn't a shut-in or anything. We we played a lot outside, we did a lot of stuff, but video games were so in, like integral and part of our lives. And I think we're the first generation to really have that. And so now... I'm I'm making games, and I whatever I start a new game, or whatever I, I find myself trying to recapture a lot of those feelings we had before. And now with uh, the ability to, for people to make games again, that that's easier. Like with platforms like Unity or Unreal, um, we have that kind of renaissance again. Like it's it's kind of going back to that. Where I love the fact that there's people who get together. There's a group near my house that gets together every weekend or every week, uh, right by my house, down on this like strip where there's a bar, and they all go in there and they talk about. Making games and what they're working on, they show it all off. And it's like it's, it's all coming back, and it's amazing.
0: There was uh, there was some some discussion leading up into the the latest release of consoles with the Xbox One and the PlayStation Four that maybe this was the end for for console games. Did were there kind of similar feelings around like maybe console games are, are coming to to an end because? Obviously, that didn't happen. You have a PlayStation 4 that sold 40 million units. The Xbox One is behind, but not by too much. It seems like people still want to play video games, and they still want a box underneath their TV.
1: It blew away everybody's expectation. We were talking to analysts because we're a game company, mm-hmm. so we want to know like, is this the end? Is like, should we even be investing in these exactly. things? And everybody was recommending we shouldn't. And so it was kind of like, okay, well, we'll we won't go all in. We'll keep working on mobile and we'll do the stuff. Mm-hmm. And then they just like, they just took off, and it, it was amazing to watch. I was so satisfied with uh, the numbers as they started to come back, even just like a month after each platform launched, mm-hmm. and it was it was blowing away every expectation. And so for me, it was like it was great. It was it was validation that people still love video games. It's still part of their lives, and they really want consoles. They love consoles, Mm -hmm. and you know it it also proved that you can have consoles and have uh, like console exclusive games that people really enjoy, and you can also have Steam, and you can also have mobile, and they can all coexist, and they can also like work together. We have now platform gate. The the gates are opening up for multi platform play, where people can play on an Xbox and get a PlayStation or a PC or or even mobile, and that's just crazy.
0: Video games are still around, and they're, they're always going to be around in, in one form or another, right? Because people are always going to look for some kind of entertainment, and interactive entertainment is something that is really exclusive to video games, and then maybe in the future, maybe exclusive to VR.
1: Yeah, VR is exciting right now, because that's another one of those innovations that comes every so often, and we're still a young industry, and people haven't figured out what to do with it, so you have a lot of experimenting going on right now, which is really exciting.
0: Maybe if people don't know about the, the whole VR, the, the VR, I want to call it a boom. Because you now have a couple things. You have Oculus Rift, you have the, the Vive from HTC, and then you also have a uh, missing one, Mike.
1: Oh, Cast AR is one, which is the Jerry Ellsworth kind of saying. There's HoloLens and the augmented reality, things like Magic Leap I'm that missing, are coming along. I'm
0: missing a bunch.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. Samsung gear. All those like, yeah, there you go. There you go. There's another one. There's, I mean, do you
0: see this as, as, uh, as a developer yourself? Do you see this as something to be excited about? Have you played around with any of this equipment? Like the, the kits are now kind of out in the open. Do you see this as something to then be another leaping point? Like this is going to be another thing that just jumpstarts and even re energizes the, the video game industry and video games being in homes in general.
1: I, I really think it will. I'm in fact I'm doing this podcast from our VR room in our office because we have all the equipment here. So we have all the <laughs> all the stuff here. Uh we have the oh, we have the Sony PlayStation VR, all the stuff that like are all gonna be big players. Um, but it's this is the second go-around for VR really, because in the nineties we had these destination games. I remember, Dac- I think it was uh, Dactyl Attack or Pterodactyl Attack or whatever. It was this thing you could go play. Um, the was Jaguar the was going to have those. It, yeah. it, it was a kiosk
0: at the mall where you could like step into this box and put in this this, hel- this gigantic helmet <laughs> that a poor like six-year-old kid at the time or seven-year-old kid I was not allowed to put on.
1: Oh, yeah, and who knows how many lice infestations we had also. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but like, those... They tried really hard in the 90s, but the technology wasn't there yet. And so you had like Jaguar VR coming out, Genesis had something that was supposed to be coming out, Um, all these PC attempts at it, and it just wasn't there because like everybody had seen the movie Lawnmower Man. They're like, it's right here, it's right now, and it just wasn't. So now we kind of have the Lawnmower Man experience we can do. Mm -hmm. Um, We have this great hardware, and it's just a matter of uh, content. There's just got to be enough content to bring people to it. I think we're three to five years out from. The massive consumer use of this sort of stuff because we're still feeling our way around. I, I am a big fan of augmented reality over virtual reality because that is like magic to me. It just blows my mind every time we use it. But the uh, and VR is very solitary, so we're trying to find ways to make sure that it can be very social with VR and listening. So there's a lot to learn right now, and that's I think what's super exciting for developers more than even consumers right now, is that there's so much to learn. There's so much we can do with it. Every day feels like we're discovering some new thing that nobody could have imagined and things you can do with that. And that hopefully turns into massive consumer interest. I am
0: someone that no longer has a a console under the TV. All I have, I have old consoles under the TV. I don't have a current generation console. But the one thing that has me excited to jump back in is playstation vr if i could have something that is is an all-in-one real like really an all-in-one box and i can just buy it and i know everything that i put into it is going to work without like updating video cards or anything like that that is something that excites me and i can't wait to see what they have this fall in terms of pricing for i know they have like a separate box thing but maybe if they can do an all-in-one with a new console that would be really great hopefully they can pull that stuff off just to make it even easier for the consumer
1: I think they will, and especially when their price point is going to be equivalent to just buying the gear for a PC. Like you'll, you'll see a lot of people adopting the early adopter VR guys who want to dabble with it will probably be investing in the PlayStation VR because, as you said, it makes so much more sense, and you don't have to worry about do I have the right kind of PC, do I have enough horsepower because the games are going to be developed exactly for that platform. That'd be really good. I was
0: going to ask you, have you seen the? uh, This is a. I think it's on Steam, which is a, a video game platform for the uh, PC, but there's this, I guess you would call it, I don't know if you call it a game or an application, but there's this thing where you can go back in time to the 80s and step inside of an arcade and walk around yeah. an arcade, and it actually has all the art, like MAME running all the games in the arcade cabinets with original art on all the cabinets, and you can even find like tapes lying around you can pick up the tapes and you can put them in like a tape player and 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 listen to them see that's that is something that is unbelievable like if i could do that like where i could literally be transported to 1988 and go back to an arcade and walk around like that is something that is just unbelievably uh amazing
1: and that's that's what will sell me vr I think that's what most people are excited about. A lot of the stuff we're working on right now for speculation for different companies is kind of the time machine app,
0: yes, where yes. you
1: put yourself in a moment in time that you can't experience today, yeah. and the, the environment, and the sounds, and everything you see is something you you won't see today. Whether it's a seventh wonder or whatever, yeah. it takes you to those places that that don't exist anymore, and it just it just it wraps you in it, and it's a, it's amazing that arcade thing is the the app for that is amazing. It the the music you get to play like your journey tape and everything yep. that's in there. And it, you, the only thing missing is the smell. <laughs> and like if they, if that was added, you almost feel like you just went back in time. What it's What does nineteen eighty smell like? Is it like a roller rink? Is that what It's it probably a like? roller rink <laughs> to me it's th- this food court I used to go to yeah. all the time it's like a specific smell that wasn't any one kind of food it was just this pungent like every food smell <laughs>
0: Yeah it, I mean that's that's the mall it's like the food court of just a mixture of your Sabaros and McDonald's <laughs> yeah. and like the the Chinese food place all mixed into one smell with also new clothes smell a little bit
1: yeah and trying to like not have obvious eye contact with that cute girl over there <laughs> so, like, oh, it's man, just is she
0: looking is she looking over here
1: oh man um <laughs> so that
0: i never even really thought about that but if it, if you can really make mike micah's time machine and put that up on an app store and i can put like a headset on and go back in time and, and play like you know even if i could go back and and sit in front of like an old CRT and play those Mega Man games inside of, of VR. It sounds so weird, but that would just be incredibly cool. It's the closest thing we'll probably get to time travel, I think.
1: It is. And there's something kind of interesting, too, that's going on. We have 3D cameras that can capture a lot of stuff in, with 3D data in real time that it stores. So like, say we had a room with four 3D cameras, we get most space, and you just want to record eight hours worth of what's going on here. So, like, you know, like, if you're a kid, it's, like, you and your buddies and you're playing games and watching all this stuff and then, like, your parents coming through and all this stuff, it records in 3D and full texture all this stuff that you can then store and then, like, 20 years later go back to that moment and walk around it. And, like, to see the carpet you had, the wallpaper you had, the, the TV model you had and all this stuff, like, that's going to be like nuts. Revisit,
0: like, what if you could go, like, 20 years in the future, you could go back in time and, and revisit your, your kid's third birthday,
1: Exactly, well, and totally, it'll be a yeah, nice resolution. Be, uh, and you're just gonna look down in their face and see them smiling, and you see all of it, and you can almost reach out and touch them. That's yeah, gonna that's be crazy, nuts, and that's that's what that's our future. That's what we're gonna have, and people are gonna start capturing their moments like that.
0: That's some um, Minority Report. Was it Minority Report where like Tom Cruise is like playing back the the holo- yeah.
1: holographic tapes of his <laughs> yeah. kid's birthday party? That was a little dark, but um. Maybe, but that that's going to happen. Like you, you don't have to worry. Like you can, you, these memories are going to be more tangible and you can go back to those. It'll be like real moments. So when you think back, mm-hmm. it, you tend to tint those, those moments and they, they get changed in your mind. Uh, but to be able to go back to that raw real moment will, would, will, will be just amazing.
0: Well, let's go back to 2013 and yeah. also 1982 because <laughs> uh, I mean, th- this is another thing that you might know Mike from. Uh, the article, uh, from, from wire.com, why I hacked Donkey Kong for my, my daughter. And this is a story that got picked up all over the place where, uh, you hacked Donkey Kong so your daughter could play as Pauline and Pauline is then going to save Mario, what what spurred this this desire to to hack this game? And uh, were you <laughs> so surprised by the response? Because, like I said, like I read this before we even kind of were, were first in contact, and this is I, this might be the first time that I kind of learned about you and, and what you've been doing.
1: Yeah, I had been. My daughter was three at the time, and we'd been playing a lot of games together, and I was introducing her to a lot of the older games that I grew up playing. That. I felt were a little bit easier, even though Donkey Kong's a tough game. Yeah, and so uh, she really liked Donkey Kong. She liked some of the other games, but that one she really gravitated towards. And so we'd play together. And then I thought, well, this is great. I'll introduce her to some of the other Mario games. And so we started to go through Super Mario Brothers and Super Mario Brothers Two, Super Mario Brothers Three. And then we kept going back to Super Mario Brothers Two because she could play as Princess Toadstool. I think is her name in that one. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was great, but she just didn't like it as much as Donkey Kong. So then we go back to Donkey Kong the first thing out of her mouth is like, why can't I play as the girl and save Mario? And it's like, oh yeah, that that would be really cool. And uh we just played a little bit and I, I was thinking about it all night and I'm like, I could probably hack this. I could probably make it work. And so I decided to start doing that and I had my partner in crime here, Kevin Wilson, pointed me to some tools that I could use to help hack the ROM and everything. And um, I thought it'd be really fun to just start posting on Facebook my progress because I knew I had a lot of geeky friends that would probably be into it. So I started posting it and what I didn't realize is that like my friends started to post this stuff everywhere else because they thought it was really cool. And one of the places they posted, Reddit, it, it just kind of took off there. And I went to bed, I got the thing done. The next morning I, I showed it to her and she thought it was awesome. And I didn't think anything of it after that. And I remember that weekend, I went to this charity event for my son for his school. And uh, on the way, my wife's like, just shut off your phone. I can't stand when you keep checking your phone when we do these things. And so I'm like, oh, all right, all right. And then I just didn't, I put it in my pocket. And so I'm trying not to look at my phone. My phone just keeps ringing and there's all these texts coming through. And finally I'm like, you know, I'm going to go check my phone. I'll go out in the hall because I think, what if it's the babysitter or something? So I go out there and I have all these messages and people are like, your story's blowing up and all this stuff. And I started to freak out because I'm like, my story's blowing. Up. What did I say about somebody <laughs> or whatever on some sort of podcast or whatever that's got me in trouble now? And so I called my friend and he's like, your Donkey Kong thing, it's just all over the place. It's on the front page of Reddit and all this stuff. And I'm like, What? And then uh, by the next day, I, my our answering machine was full of messages. My parents were getting calls because they're trying to track me down, and they're in Michigan. I'm living California. And by Monday morning, I'm like, "Good morning, America," and stuff, just talking about this thing. And I think what really what really resonated with people was the the fact that there was at the exact same moment in time that I was not even thinking about there was the Trope's versus Women in Video Game series had launched. Mm-hmm. That was a new a new Sarkeesian's. Uh, series about you know tropes and against women and video games and all stuff, and uh, I think that was also the very beginning of Gamergate and all this stuff kind of just coming together. And so here's this here's this guy who decides to pull Mario, this beloved character out of Donkey Kong, and then make him the damsel in distress, and then do this other thing. So and I blame my daughter for all that. Um, but it it just, it just it blew up, and there was like this uh, technology conference in New York that ended their show by dimming the lights and projecting the game on the wall and. Mm-hmm. All this kind of cool stuff started to happen and it really opened my eyes to um one, like the world my daughter's growing up in and what what we can do about it. And the the results of it were, wow, it's really not that hard to make a game that anybody can play and it can be for anybody. Because even hacking a ROM wasn't very difficult. They did it in a night. Mm-hmm. And if you're making a game, why don't you offer an option? Why don't you put it in the design to allow young kids who are just looking for some, something to relate to, give them that ability? And so it really got my mind thinking about uh, things i would be working on in the future and not too distant future. This,
0: uh, this video that you posted of the, the hack has been viewed uh, 2.7 million times on, <laughs> on YouTube. And I have, maybe this isn't an obvious question. Maybe it is. I don't even remember if I asked you this way back when I originally talked to you. But have you heard from Nintendo?
1: You know, I, say I... Anything about this? they didn't say anything officially. And I remember meeting a few people that I knew up at Nintendo and, uh, they would, they it always started with them shaking their head and then we were <laughs> like, that was, that was pretty cool. And then, uh, I once somebody there told me, um, cause they had come out with the new super Mario brothers or there was something super Mario 3d world or something. There was, it was interesting because they'd made, um, the princess playable again in a Mario game. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I forgot which game it was. It, it like may it have it would have been
0: 3d world. That sounds, a I think it
1: was 3d point. world. Yeah and um somebody at one of the uh, somebody from nintendo was talking about the game and actually mentioned the hack and it was it was, it was amazing and they were just talking about like the interest in, in that sort of thing and you know and nintendo but he was doing it from a defensive stance of like nintendo's always done this sort of you know thing and they have like i was it wasn't a statement against nintendo i mean they uh created metroid with a, a lead female character and it was right. a great reveal at the end and stuff so they were very progressive all along but um No, it was pretty exciting.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say if, if they are not, you know, coming after you with, you know, uh, torches and pitchforks and stuff like that, that's usually a vote of confidence or at least an endorsement. Uh,
1: that yeah, they, 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 they like can't officially say anything. they right. just kind of like, okay, we'll look the other way.
0: And it has to be a hell of a, a PR you know uh, win for them too because it brings back Donkey Kong. Nintendo's all over the news. People are maybe <laughs> jumping on Virtual Console and, and downloading Donkey Kong uh, again or maybe they're going to their local retro arcade and, and throwing a couple quarters in the, that awesome machine, which I've owned a couple
1: of. Oh, show. Nintendo definitely took advantage. That I, I remember seeing all this Nintendo Donkey Kong stuff being talked about. Yeah, <laughs> like they're, yeah. they're talking about Donkey Kong, and I'm like this press release or this, and it's like, okay, they they know.
0: <laughs> so, what was the first game that you made uh, a check on? The first game that you you got uh, professionally paid for, maybe your first professional work, and how did it, how did it turn out?
1: So my first professional game. Oh, there, there was a, it was a Game Boy game. It was Yars Revenge, a remake of a classic Atari 2600 game. And I was trying to figure out how to program a Game Boy. And there were these websites, the early websites that uh, people started to, to disassemble and, and decrypt the, the Game Boy and figure out how to program for it. And so I was looking at all these documents people were making, and I, I decided I was going to try to make one. And my first choice was to make Yars Revenge because that was one of my favorite games. And it seemed simple enough and so I started making it, and I was posting up um, builds of it on this uh, website. I forgot what it was called, but it was a Game Boy hacking website. Um, and uh, somebody just emailed me out of the blue and said, "Hey, you should talk to Howard Scott Warshaw. He's the guy who made the original Yard's Revenge, and he'd probably think this is really cool. Uh, would you want to talk to him?" I'm like, "Sure." <laughs> and uh, so they they made an intro, and I'm talking to Howard for the first time, and I'm you know trying not to geek out too much. And, um, he's like, well, where do you live? And I'm like, well, I live in Michigan near the Detroit area, whatever. And he's like, well, I'm going to be out there in two weeks. Let's hang out. I'm like, all right. So, um, my friend and I, we went over to the hotel where he we was staying. We hung out in the bar and he regaled us with all these old Atari stories that at this point, nobody had really heard before. And, um, it was crazy. It was intense. It was awesome. And we, uh, I, I was so inspired from the talk because he was talking about what uh, they were gonna be, what they were gonna do with the Ars Revenge if they made a sequel, what he wish he would have put into the game, and he said we should go ahead and use it if we want. And so I, I, I went back that next day and just started uh, went into overdrive on finishing up this game, and I had it nearly done when um, Terry Grantham, I think is his name, the guy who run, ran a company called TeleGames out of Texas, he contacted me and was wanting to know what I was gonna do with the game if I was looking to distribute it, and I was kind of like sure. Like, what what do I have to do for that? And, uh, so we made it official. He went and got the rights for years revenge and, um, he produced the game and that was my first real official game out there. It wasn't like some cobbled together, sell it by hand kind of thing that was like manufactured packaged in a box. And it was for a Nintendo platform. And that, that was my, my first game. And at that time when I was pulling all that together, I was making my move from Michigan to California to start my first job out here, which was writing for a magazine called Next Generation, which was a next generation game magazine. Yeah. So I was for a year, I was an editor at Next Generation.
0: Wow. Oh, God, I probably read your writing because I was I was that I was I don't know if it's a terrible thing. Maybe they still didn't mind, but I was that butthead kid that did all the free trials in the magazines and then oh, yeah. when my trial ran out after two or three issues, I would just make a like, I would change my name by one letter or use my dad's name. So it was <laughs> constantly getting brand new subscriptions and then also getting the follow-up like, hey, just a heads up, you owe us $20, you should yeah. pay us. And <laughs> no, nah, man, I still kept getting up like issues of Game Pro and Next Generation and like whatever I could find those little cardboard uh, pieces of paper for so I can get new video game
1: magazines. Sorry. Yeah, it was it was great. I was hired by Chris Charla, who now runs ID at Xbox at yeah. Microsoft. Wow. And he was the editor-in-chief at the time. I came out, and that was kind of the opening of the floodgates for my career because mm-hmm. at this point I was just making games trying to get published and recognized. And I had a brief stint trying to make an Atari Jaguar game for Atari. And so when I moved out to California in the Bay Area... I met everybody in the game industry. That one year at NextGen set me up for the rest of my career because I had now met everybody. They knew who I was. They knew what I was capable of. And it just made it a lot easier.
0: Wow. Uh, okay. Um, there's, there's a couple other things I want to ask you, but uh, I, I want to stick with Yara's Revenge for a second. Because I got to imagine as soon as you have your very first like physical boxed retail product did you go out to the store and just like hang out and see if people were picking up copies of that when it was released?
1: Oh, I did. And I don't think anybody, <laughs> I don't think I ever caught anybody buying it. I would, I would go to the store and I would grab like, they probably have like three or four copies. Mm-hmm. And I would grab every copy and then spread them out in front of all the other games. Like, come on, like I got to bait people. Come on, come on, come on. And I remember telling people like, you know, that Yars Revenge game is pretty good. Runs better <laughs> you have a Game Boy Color. Runs better in Game Boy Color. Yeah, you should check that one out. It's based off an older game, but it plays really good.
0: <laughs> don't, don't buy that Link's Awakening stuff. You yeah. want to get you know nice color arcade classics on on your Game Boy. And I, the 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 crazy thing is that I was able to get a uh, copy of that. Um, maybe maybe it was like a year and a half ago after we talked, and I ended up doing the the crazy thing of looking for the the Mike Micah developed video game collection on <laughs> eBay and getting like that and Tarzan for the Game Boy Color. Oh yeah, and just like trying all this stuff out and. It's really crazy having that context of like what you did to like get everything to work in that game. And then when you go and play it and you can kind of like see, oh man, like, yeah, it totally works. Like you got everything working perfectly, which is, which is kind of a triumph. So with, with all that, you, that is a a pretty big success. Like getting that first game out and you've been doing that must have been what, like 1999?
1: It was 97, 98, I think. Okay.
0: Um, so, Roughly almost 18 years ago. Yep. In, in that time period, uh, it, it, it couldn't have been all victories. I mean, you've worked on a bunch of games. Were, were there any, not even necessarily games where you feel like, man, that just, that just wasn't what I wanted it to be, or, um, there, there's always going to be roadblocks and, 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 hurdles and obstacles professionally. Uh, what, what are like the major things that, that you've run into?
1: So my, this is a good question because my next game, uh, was was my post next gen experience game that i was doing for game boy Mm -hmm. and at the time i remember i did game boy and i thought oh this is like this platform that's already old nobody cares about and um there were these games that just started to do really well on game boy that were late generation i think thq put out like three or four games that just sold incredibly well and so everybody was jumping on the bandwagon like we have to do more game boy games Mm -hmm. this is before game boy color and so uh Uh, I was introduced by Chris Charla to my business partner who I still work with today, uh, Andrew Ayer, and uh, we met at the top of a double-decker McDonald's and signed a contract to do NFL Blitz for Game Boy, and I was like, this is great. I like NFL Blitz. It's a fun game, and it should be easy enough. Yeah, it's a huge franchise, and this is a way to get in and do all this stuff, so... We signed that, and uh, regardless of me not knowing anything about football, really, that was the, that was a big problem because I knew nothing about football. I, I, I grew up in Detroit where we had the Detroit Lions. They, they weren't doing it for anybody, mm-hmm. and so I, I gravitated more towards basketball and hockey and all that. And um, So we signed this, and I'm like, okay, I'll start working on this. I was still working at Next Gen. So I would go home, work on NFL Blitz, and then in the morning just wake up like two hours later. Go in, work on the magazine, then go home, work on the game. And I just did this for, I think it was it was probably three and a half months because it was a really tight schedule. And I thought I did Yars' of Revenge really quick. What if I do NFL Blitz? Not, you know, this is my first time experiencing like how much scope I really have to deal with and mm-hmm. all this stuff. I was just one guy with my uh buddy from Michigan who, you know, helped me out here and there with audio and graphics and stuff like that. So we started doing this and it was just intense. And I remember at one point, um, midway had sent up some testers they're like we want them on site to help you uh figure out these bugs because i was getting all these bugs where they're like this thing isn't working this thing isn't working it's because i didn't even know how football worked so i'm like oh i would look at the bug and go oh that's what we need to do i'd use the bugs as a way to implement features and i think midway was getting a little frustrated and stuff so they sent these two testers who kind of just arrived cold turkey and um they're like where should we go and i'm like well i live in a one-bedroom apartment with my girlfriend at the time uh we can work out of there at night and they're like, Well, what about during the day? And I'm like, Well, I don't work on the game during the day. And they're just kind of what? But they were super cool. They're like, they wouldn't tell they wouldn't tell Midway what was going on. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of like, okay, we'll just go along with this and we'll help you out. So they would go and stay at like, I think it was called Lions, it's like kind of Denny's restaurant during the day and just play the game there and on Game Boy and write a bugs. And then when I got off work, they would just come over to our one bedroom apartment. We just sit there, like they'd sit on the floor and I just kind of crank away on this game. It was really crazy. <laughs> and um I remember I was at NextGen, and I got this urgent call from one of them, and they're like, okay, everybody at the, the headquarters, they're, they're kind of pissed off because the one thing that isn't in here yet and we're getting close to the end is, like, you haven't put safeties in. Mm-hmm. And I cupped the phone, and I turned over to Tom Russo, who was working at the magazine at the time, and I'm like, what's a safety? And he's like, explained to me, and I it, it just it put chills down my spine because I, I didn't know how the hell I was going to implement this thing. So I remember getting back on the phone, I'm like, okay, well, I'll, I'll try to figure out how to get those working again as if they ever worked. And then that night, I worked so hard to try to get safeties in. I got them in pretty well, but it wasn't that great. So all this goes on for about three months, and we finally sew it all up. They ship it, and the first reviews start coming back, and the reviews were terrible. I remember, like, here I am, like, all these aspirations to get the game industry. I was pretty cocky. I thought I could do anything. And uh, the first review I read was, like, a 2 out of 10, and yeah. they're complaining about the graphics and everything else. And, and there's a, I have some excuses, but I'm not going to use them really. But uh, halfway through the production of Blitz is when Nintendo decided to announce they're going to do Game Boy Color, and so there's this whole new renewed interest in like Game Boy, mm-hmm. and Midway immediately said, "Okay, we're going to give you a little bit more money to make it color, and we're nearly done." When this happened, so it's like, "How are we going to do that?" So we had to make it color and backwards compatible in a very limited amount of cartridge space. It was just a nightmare, mm-hmm. and so we tried. We scrambled. We put color in it. It was it was challenging. We had to put printer support because they announced a the printer before anybody even knew how to use it. So we're you trying to figure out how to use printer.
0: printer
1: Yeah, we do. You print out your season stats. What? I so you, it's true. And all this in like three months. And when we we're making that, like there was no documentation on the printer. Mm-hmm. I was actually going back to that website that I learned how to program Game Boy for, where people disassembled and figured out how to make the printer do things based off the Japanese version of the printer before it even launched in the US. Mm-hmm. And so I used that to make, put printer support in. And so all this stuff kind of comes together and we're getting these terrible reviews And I remember like Midway was a little upset and everything, but then we, we finally heard, I mean, it has a, it probably has a positive side to this in the end um, because Game Boy was just taking off so much that even with a terrible game, they sold 400 plus thousand units of it. And that was amazing at the time. And so that, that just made Midway want to do, sign up more games for us. They're like, well, we don't care. Even if they turn out bad, they sell. So let's just do this and so we we worked on i don't know how many games for midway but we started working on game after game and we finally hit our stride like i got better nfl blitz is a down point and i thought like no one's gonna want to work with me again and all stuff and um but the next few games really took off tarzan was one of them we did tarzan for activision and that was a complete opposite effect it was reviewed really well sold extremely well even more than nfl blitz and it, it just helped my career take off
0: you know, I love the internet because I just found a, an article from August 2000 from IGN.com, Game Boy at Classic Gaming Expo 2000. <laughs> I didn't know Classic Gaming Expo was around in 2000. Do you know this, this piece? So this is from Craig is Harris. Is it Craig Harris? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I guess he, he interviewed you at, uh, at this event and, you had some good quotes in there. Uh like so you think Game Boy Color game development will cease when the Game Boy Advance comes out. No way. Game Boy Color systems and cartridges will drop in the price, so publishers will start uh will still want to continue making games for that system. 100% correct. That Game Boy Color was around forever.
1: It was hard to kill even when Nintendo tried to.
0: It right, they they like had a new hardware out, but I still saw, you know, Game Boys going like they They were still dominating like I have like Best Buy and like e b games at the time like there there was a bigger selection of game boy and game boy color stuff than there were for like Game Boy Advance it was kind of slow to get going. I remember
1: it was a big shift for developers too because there's a lot more you could do with it, and it was very different, and so you've had this like all these years, you go all the way back to the original Game Boy, black and white. It was the, the Game Boy Color was the same hardware with just some things added to it. Mm-hmm. So you have people who've learned how to just optimize their production pipeline, everything on that platform and make a lot of money doing it. And so when the Game Boy Advance came out, there was, you had to relearn everything and it was going to take a while for everybody to get used to the platform. And so in that time, people just kept making Game Boy Color games because they were selling and it just, they wouldn't stop and it was backwards compatible. So Game Boy Advance could play Game Boy Color games and it just, kept, kept the life on that longer than almost any other platform.
0: Yeah. Backwards compatibility is something that isn't, uh, isn't necessarily a standard these days. Although Xbox One came out of nowhere last yeah. year at E3 and now has a really decent library of backwards compatible stuff on their Xbox One. It's like a selling point of their online service as well. Hey, we give you every single one of these Xbox 360 games we give you also backwards compatible on your Xbox One. They uh they did some some magicians work to make they that did. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, so we are are all the way back like in in 2016 now, and like I was uh, mentioning before, you guys have you're you're still working on a lot of stuff. You had IDARB that came out in was that 2014? Was that the beta, and it came out in 2015 for for everyone? What was the timeline for that?
1: Yeah, so. It came out in 2014 holiday for beta. It was like a early release. We had finished the game, but there was not a really good launch window. Mm-hmm. And this game, Idar, the name comes from a, a tweet that it started everything. It was, I put this tweet out there because I hadn't been programming for a while and I was just itching to do it. And I figured I might as well work on a side project at night. So I posted a picture of, what I usually do is I draw, like I have the code draw something on screen mm-hmm. and I just try to figure out what to do with it. So... I drew a red box in the middle of the screen and I took a screenshot and put it on Twitter and said, it draws a red box. What should I do with this? And so, um, you know, some people responded with some ideas and then one person happened to be Tim Schaefer, who's a very popular game designer in the game industry, uh, who has millions of followers. And so as soon as he responded, then all his followers pounced (laughs) and I just started getting all these ideas on what to do and what, what it should be. And, um, it was, it was kind of fun at first because it's like, okay, here's all these ideas. Let's just see where this goes. So I just started implementing any idea that was really, it could be stupid. It could be whatever. And, uh, my thought was this would turn into a really great panel discussion at a game developer conference where I can talk about how crowd design is the worst idea ever. And so I was just letting this kind of go along. But as it was happening within about two weeks, the game was really fun. <laughs> it was like this kind of like rains off, let's let's try to put everything in and see what happens. And people changed the game. It started out kind of as a shooter, and then it turned into this kind of sports game. because Somebody said, throw a ball in there. Or throw something in there everybody has to try to chase after. And we did that, and that set the direction for it. And I think everybody just hopped on board with that idea and started throwing all their favorite things about sports games at it. So it's, it's kind of like a sports game, but all the sports mixed together. And um, so with that first two weeks of kind of creation with all these ideas, and it kept going... That's when Microsoft, my old boss, Chris Charla, who used to be writer in chief over at NextGen, was now running a new program called Idea at Xbox. And they're looking for games that were in development that they could showcase. And because this was very public and he knew me and stuff, he thought this would be a great idea. So they sent us a couple of Xbox One development kits and we ported the game over in about two weeks. So in about a month, we had this kernel of an idea to it running on Xbox One. Mm-hmm. And they invited us to the Game Developer Conference that year. And they said, can we show it? And I thought, yeah, fine. That'd be great. So I show up with my kids and I'm looking for where they want us to go set up. I thought we were going to be in some sort of like in progress lab thing showing off ID Xbox games, like hobbyists or whatever. But our kiosk is right between like these two big games. I remember it was Dead Rising 3 and Titanfall. And I panicked because I'm like, this is not where we're supposed to be. And our game's only a month old and it's barely playable. And I I remember tracking somebody down going, like, I think there's a mistake or whatever. And then Chris finally got a hold of me. He's like, no, no, that's fine. That's fine. We just want it there and everything. I'm like, all right. So I put it on. I've been kind of freaking out at this point because I'm like, our name's on this. People are going to see this thing. It's like half the art in here we stole from the internet. Like, I don't know what we're going to do with this. And then uh, the, the show opened. People were coming by. It was kind of this curious crowd looking at everything. And by the end of the day, we had the largest crowd around our game. And everybody was super excited. I remember Phil Spencer came by and played it. And he changed his. He took a picture of it. He changed his uh, Twitter avatar to IDARB, and also it was just like people were excited. I, we were getting all these calls by magazines who wanted to talk about the game and show it off and everything. I'm like, all right, we went on Giant Bomb. We did all this stuff that normally doesn't happen to us and when we do anything. And so it it took off. And um, when we after the show was done, we got a call from Microsoft. They bought out our first year of sales because they thought it was going to be really cool to have wow. and stuff. So it just it was a success before it was even done. It was a success before it was even barely done. And so we're like, all right, let's do it. And uh, we spent eight months working on that. And um, the process that we kind of came up with was we'd continue to go out there. and People were throwing ideas at us. We'd grab every idea. We'd sort out which ones were the best ones to implement by. Is it cool? Is it funny? Is it easy to implement and stuff? And we'd float that to the top. We'd just throw the stuff in. Every night I kept throwing more and more stuff in. And by the time we shipped it, uh, there was only... We were we had estimated we'd be able to ship, I think it was like November, and we missed it. We missed Thanksgiving. And that's what we really wanted. Uh we we're just having a hard time getting through um certification. Usually on any new platform, it takes a little while to understand all the nuance of the platform. So mm-hmm. we would submit and it'd be like, Oh, you didn't do this, and we like, Okay, and you'd go back and forth and finally it just kind of skipped its day. So we're like, All right, now we're done. Can we ship for Christmas? So like, oh it's too late. We got to, we got everything kind of crammed in here, so you can't really do that. I'm like, when's the next window? And they said the only available date that's left is Super Bowl Sunday, because nobody wants it. And <laughs> they're like, oh, and I didn't want to wait too long. That was that was already two months after yeah. we were done. Uh, three months almost. And I'm like, is that, that's the earliest? And then the next one after that was like months away. So I'm like, well, we'll take it, because the sooner we can get out, the better. I don't want to sit on this and whatever. And um, one thing that we had done with this game uh, as we are developing is we allowed people to interact with anybody playing the game live. If they were streaming it. They can tweet or Twitch chat to the game, any game session. Except it could be somebody in Sweden right now mm-hmm. playing the game, and you could be watching a stream and then pull out your phone and tweet to that game and ch- turn out the lights, rick roll it, do all this fun stuff to people who are playing the game and mess with them. Uh, basically, we gave uh, the trolls something to do when somebody's playing a game. Mm-hmm. And that was happening when we are at trade shows and stuff all the way up leading up to our release. And then also, the thing that uh, I, in hindsight was brilliant, we just asked if there was any way we could get tokens. We got like 2,000 tokens that would give people the game for free and for, it's usually for magazines or whatever. And so we got these tokens and Microsoft said, it's fine, whatever we want to do with them. We're like, really, we can just give them away to anybody. And they're like, sure. Cause they, nobody else had really done that. And we're like, okay. So I just started giving away these codes to people who would just ask for them on Twitter. So people started to play the game over the holidays mm-hmm. and because they're playing it and streaming it, these people who were curious about the game and it was an Xbox game that they wanted to see or whatever, the only way to interact with the game is to mention IDARB on Twitter because you have to put hashtag IDARB and then what you want to do with it. So everybody who was trying to watch the game and interact with it were promoting our game by just interacting with it. So by the time, it, we like two months later, past all those tokens being given out and everything, thing, when we launched on Super Bowl Sunday, which is normally the kiss of death, we ended up having 16 years of gameplay on that day alone just because of the word of oh, mouth wow. that happened to like pull it off. So it was a huge success for us, and it was it was huge for everybody involved. Have you
0: seen? I mean, that's a, a brilliant idea to have a hashtag be something that allows you to interact, allow anyone to interact with, with really anyone's game. Because, like you said, you're, you're literally trending worldwide with, with iDARP. And then people start seeing this, like, what? I need to go check this out. Like, what is this? And then they find out it's, it's like a mix between like an awesome, like soccer game and NBA jam and NFL blitz. And then also just like the internet is kind of just like mixed in there together. And they have to go check it out. Was that, do you think that's a, that was a huge component of its success?
1: I think so. I don't think we would have had any of the traction we had had it not been for that. Because when we launched the amount, the word of mouth and the, like I said, trending, we were trending for many days, mm-hmm. uh, on, on the general overall. Twitter list and that was that was crazy and it was all because the sheer number of people who wanted to mess with live games we were on um, we're on this Twitch stream that had 30,000 people watching and we had all of them in Twitch chat affecting the game and they weren't even tracking the number of people who were coming in from Twitter which happened to be probably just as much if not more mm-hmm. and so that 60,000 people when we're playing like a 10 minute game like <laughs> mentioning the game constantly that was a huge boost for us. Would you say? And this is something that a,
0: a lot of people uh, that had Xbox Ones at the time. I believe it was uh, also part of their their Games with Gold. So you mm-hmm. had so you had a ton of people playing it uh, as well. Did you see uh, with, with like Games with Gold? Like even afterwards, like so many people have this game that it kind of like continues the momentum going forward as it becomes a a a paid product on the marketplace as well.
1: It, it really worked out for us because as it switched over to paid after that first month, it became two months of games of gold because Microsoft extended that, oh, okay. and uh, which was financially beneficial to us. But even after those two months that everybody in the world could potentially have it, mm-hmm. our sales were great. It, the, the, the trade-off was fantastic. And we still see really healthy sales on the game. And a lot of that, I think, is continually the um, word of mouth that happens as people interact with totally. it. Totally. We've done updates. We've got this stuff out there where we've we even had the attention of all these different people who own different properties. So in the game, there's all these teams. Like there's a Double Fine team. There's Harmonix has a team in there. We also have like uh, expansion packs for a Walking Dead upgrade to it, where you have these Walking Dead arenas. We have a He-Man arena and all stuff. Mattel jumped in. It was just crazy how much people like how much goodwill people had for this product and a willingness to, to help it out. It is. It is an amazing game that people need to check out. If you haven't checked it out, just
0: at least do the minimum of going to to YouTube. If you don't have uh, an Xbox One, so you can go check it out. It is one of the most crazy, frantic. It's like the closest thing that I've been able to play to to NBA Jam and like recreate that magic since NBA Jam came out in like 1993. Uh, definitely go go and pick it up. Especially if you ever have other people over in the house. Yeah. That's something that will just kind of cause chaos between you and friends. And, uh, it is always just a fun to, to play. And even just as someone that's like watching it all happen, it's a blast to watch. Uh, would you say that is, is, is that your biggest success as a developer? Would you put that at the top of the thing that you are most proud
1: of? I think so because I've worked on a lot of other people's intellectual property um we we've done a couple of our own things but it's, this is something that like we created that came out of my head mm-hmm. that ex, it succeeded really well like i'd say we probably had bigger successes with like our street fighter stuff and everything else but financially never, this was like the most perfect well-rounded project we own it we did really well financially on it and we can do anything we want with it this is probably the most exciting thing i've worked on
0: so when uh like do you have a timetable for the the game boy color version Is that that coming (laughs) as Nintendo, like, like on your back to get it out on the Game Boy Color?
1: (laughs) You know, uh, it's funny. One of the guys here started to port it to the NES, and we had this, like, really primitive version of it on the NES uh, for a little while. Um, But that's as far as we got on porting it to uh, an older platform. I,
0: I, I would love to see, like, Nintendo's in a really weird place right now in terms of, uh, not being the hottest, uh, develop, not developer, but console, uh, maker right now. They're, they're, they're not doing the best, uh, financially. I would love them to just allow almost anything to happen. Like, if you want to make a new Super Nintendo game and put it up on the virtual console and, like, have that restrict the restrictions of a Super Nintendo and just have a, like a revitalization of awesome 16-bit games, but in those confines or the the restrictions yeah. of that hardware, that would be rad. Although I guess people are just doing it anyways and releasing them on Steam, Xbox Live, and PlayStation Network.
1: That's pretty much what they're doing. Although it'd be amazing if Nintendo would let you use their IP. If there was a certain amount of IP that they would be fine oh, with, we're like, yeah. you know what? Because like lately, I've been hacking away and sharing online, like my balloon fight. love of Balloon Fight. Yes. Yeah. I'm like, I know Nintendo will never let this happen or whatever, but I'm just doing it for me and my friends or whatever. But like, and I could reskin it later, and it's not really Balloon Fight because it's got different kinds of physics or whatever. But it'd be amazing if Nintendo was like, you know what, that's cool. Let's go ahead and put it on like the NX or whatever, and be like, all right, (laughs) I would would be so happy to do it because Balloon Fight's one of my favorite games, Mm. and uh, obviously because I'm recreating it for fun with eight players and all this stuff. Um, But I think that would be huge because like, you have such uh, like, if you look at Mario Maker. And how much joy that brought to the Nintendo fans like they've been going crazy making levels and there's a there's an extra tier of that for Nintendo they could like open up the the IP warehouse if you will of all these old games and just let people make stuff with it and if there's whether that has to be its own like app that they make to allow people to do that or um or it's an approval process or something it would be it would be awesome
0: it's it's what you would you would call no brainers if they can yeah. make it happen like a like a zelda maker or a metroid maker like those things with a mario maker update for for their their next consoles and even get that stuff going on the portables that just it's like i can just hear the money printing in the background yeah so exactly um and i think they're in that spot where they're just gonna try some stuff
1: yeah, they are. And I actually respect that. Like there's, they've had a lot of misses lately. They've had more misses probably yeah. consecutively than they've had almost in their whole like existence. Um, not withstanding, you know, notwithstanding like the virtual boy or whatever, mm-hmm. but like, you know, Star Fox should have been better. And all, all these games that like, they've just come out and just like the straight run were just kind of, they're okay. They're not great. Yeah. Um, but they're experimenting. And like, I hope that I have no idea what the NX is. I'm, I don't have any insight into it. um, but whatever that is i i hope it's something radical and i, I i'm fine if people are going to complain about it because i love that nintendo tries to do something different they did that so many times they failed a few times and they succeeded like the Wii, for every virtual boy there's a Wii, mm-hmm. right so it's like that's what they need to be doing and they're doing the right things whether they can like get a long enough stretch of success with it like mitomo i think is great people seem to love that mm-hmm. um so they're, they're they're finding some success here but it's It's a tough market for them it's not the old they' don't, they're not building things that people are flocking to anymore
0: yeah I, I think I'm gonna stick with my my charge shot theory that I had ever since last e three where I think Nintendo is just holding back all of their awesome games for their next console because that's yeah. like the big mistake that they made with the three d s and the Wii u There were really no games when those things launched, at least not games that were gonna sell. Uh, sell consoles to the level that they want.
1: Uh so. Well, I think your, your your theory was right, and you said that a while ago, and you, so, you just saw probably recently, maybe it was today or yesterday, the new president of Nintendo explained why they pushed the NX to yeah. 2017 instead of Christmas, for the exact reason you were saying, which is they need the games and the content to be ready, and they can't just launch without that.
0: I'm looking at this GIF of Balloon Fight HD running on a, on a CRT, and it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it looks, it looks awesome. Like that, that's like the crazy stuff that you would have seen on like the Satellaview or
1: like the yeah. Famicom
0: Disk System with a little extra juice in that console. You could have done some crazy, what was that thing called? Like the, not, was it the four score for the NES?
1: Yeah, the four score adapter. Put two four score adapters in and have eight player balloon fight.
0: Yeah, could, <laughs> oh man, or just get the, yeah, okay. Maybe, <laughs> maybe hopefully someone at Nintendo is, is looking at this stuff, but, uh, I don't know. But we are we're 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 definitely out of time, and I don't want to take up any more of your time because you're working on uh, a lot of crazy stuff but people are interested, they can get a lot more Mike Micah on back in my place, some incredible stories and stuff that we didn't even kind of get into to today, like finding old prototypes in your like garage and stuff. And, like <laughs> I, I need to hear those stories uh, in a future show, but just lots of great stuff that you can get uh, for Mike. And you got to follow him on Twitter, not just because he's posting crazy balloon fight HD gifts, but also he just has uh, some incredible stuff on there in terms of video game history. And you can stay up to date with what's going on at other ocean and digital eclipse at Mike. Micah on twitter anything else that people should keep uh an io for things that uh you're working on of course nothing that is that is unannounced but anything (laughs) that uh you know that's that's on your mind
1: well we do have uh, a game we're showing right now it's it's in it's really early but like the response has been incredible it's a vr game we're doing it for HTC vive called giant cop where you play the role of a giant cop over a miniature city so you have to like step over buildings and grab the criminals, but don't hurt anybody else. And it, it's just this really bizarre experience. The, the fact that you are a towering Godzilla-sized cop uh, and you have like beats, we have like a mission where you're, it's a stealth mission where you have to follow somebody and tail them, but they can't see you. So you're hiding behind like skyscrapers and stuff and trying not to let them see you. And it, it's just crazy. It's enough, it's its kind of like the IDAR process. It's just got so many insane ideas that just somehow work. It's and so such we're really excited. It's a ridiculous
0: for idea. I, I love it. I, I, this is, I, like, that is something that you would never be able to do. Like, you could do it with a controller, but to get, like, that kind of, like, crazy, insane experience, you gotta have the, you gotta have the headset on.
1: You do, and it's fun watching people play, because they'll get on all fours and try to peek in windows of buildings (laughs) and stuff, and it's just hilarious. (laughs) Do you
0: actually, do you actually have the ability to even render stuff inside of buildings?
1: Yes. So it's just, it's really, Jesus. it's crazy. Right. It's crazy. Oh God. You I'm can gonna push your head through VR the building. VR. You can do that Oh,
0: all. I'm going to have to buy all these VR headsets and I don't have money or room. What am I <laughs> going to do? All right. Well, uh, that is, that's super exciting stuff. And I can't wait for, for all those things to become a reality and become commonplace. And yeah. the, the thing about new technology is that it's always going to continue to get better and it's going to get cheaper. So I'm sure if it's not this year, if it's not next year, maybe it's, Three or four years down the road, everyone's going to have one or two of these headsets in their house. And we're going to be, um, I hope we're just not like in the Wally, like yeah. in the Wally <laughs> path of the future. But maybe it's more of like a, like a ready
1: player one kind of thing. I think it'll be more like ready player one, not as dystopian, but I think it'll be a lot closer to that.
0: And that reminds me, make sure it's, it's, I've seen it. It's, uh, back up on Netflix now. If you want to go check out, uh, game over, uh, that is the incredible story of Atari. And you can see Mike Micah in a desert, uh, <laughs> you know, digging up old Atari cartridges, including the wonderful classic ET. Just a, a must own for the Atari 2600.
1: I'm glad you say that because I'm, I'm kind of a fan of the game. It has its problems. And like the documentary, you, people should see it to see the evolution of that because it was, it was so hated for so long. But many of the people who were saying it, even people who were writing about it, actually never played the game. So well, I, I totally had it. I totally yeah. had a co- I mean, I think everyone had a copy
0: of that game because it's, yep. it was when the, the game eventually became like a dollar at Leishmere yep. or wherever you were picking up your games at the time. <laughs> wherever you went. And I actually thought, I used to really like just listening to, uh, not like listening to, but like I would get so afraid of the guy and like the government guy.
1: Oh, the FBI agent. The yeah. FBI
0: agent, like that would scare the crap out of me because he would just come out of nowhere and just grab you and <laughs> yeah. the game over. Um. Yeah, Atari 2600. I, I'm happy going back to my NES, but Atari 2600 is something that, uh, I'm going to just save for maybe, yeah. a, maybe a later date. Um, well, everyone, thank you so much for, for hanging out with us. Uh, as you can tell, this is maybe my favorite show to do because I get to talk to such great people like Mike Micah. And you can find all this stuff, including back in my play and all the other shows that I do at fitcast.network. There you can also get access to one feed that will give you every single show in one iTunes feed. So you can just wait for those shows to come out every single day of the week. But uh, that's going to do it for us today. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, again, chat. I always look forward to these because it's really the highlight of my day. And like I mentioned before, this is like my fifth podcast I've recorded today. It's probably my most energetic of the of five because <laughs> of how much fun we always get to have. So thank you for
1: taking the time. I really look forward to talking to you down the road. Oh, my pleasure. This is always fun. Talk to you soon, man.